John chapter 6. Let me read verses 35 through 40. And I've titled the message, The Sovereignty of God. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I begin with a question this morning. Does God's sovereignty in salvation dismiss man's responsibility to believe the gospel? Does God's sovereignty in salvation dismiss man's responsibility to believe in the gospel? In John chapter 6, we're going to see both a command to believe in the gospel and an open command, if you will, to anybody in the hearing of that. But we will also see side by side a declaration of God's sovereignty placed right next to each other. In fact, in one chapter, you have a sovereign call by God to the elect in salvation, but also a command to believe from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ side by side. God is indeed a sovereign and man is indeed responsible. And the gospel throughout uh, the New Testament is set forth before each as a matter of life and death. It is without equivocation, the gospel, the greatest choice a man will ever face. Men and women all across this globe are called to obey the gospel. They are called to believe the gospel. In fact, look back just for a moment in John chapter 4 in verse 13. This open-ended extension of the gospel. When Jesus said to her in 4.13, the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, it says, will be thirsty again. But then he said in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. But whoever drinks, an open call of the gospel. Look over at John chapter 5 in verse 24. Jesus said there, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That call goes out to everyone. Look at John 6.35. We just read it a moment ago when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to Christ. Look down at 647. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In fact, it says later in John eleven twenty five, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. J.C. Ryle, that great man of God, said, quote, everywhere in Scripture it is the leading principle that man can lose his own soul, that if he is lost at last, 
it will be his own fault and his own blood will be on his head. So it's interesting what Ryle said in the last analysis. If he is lost, it is his own fault. And yet, God is sovereign. In fact, the same inspired Bible Ryle said, which reveals the doctrine of the election, said, is the Bible that contains the words, quote, Why will you die, O house of Israel? You will not come to me that you may have life. In other words, it wasn't that they were not elect, it's just that they refused to come to Christ. The responsibility of man is seen throughout John's gospel. John the apostle said, light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, lights come but they love darkness because their deeds are evil and they are responsible for that. In fact, it says in, in John 4.19 that he exposed the sin of the woman caught in adultery. In other words, she was responsible for her sin. He rebuked the Jews for being consumed with their own glory rather than God's glory in chapter 5, verse 44. He admonished the Jews later in 8.44 for having a murderous heart and he told them that they were liars. In fact, he told them in John 3.36 that sin would lead them straight to hell. In fact, in John chapter 5, look at verse 40 there. It says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life or be saved. I mean, one thing is clear, Grace Church of the Valley. The Bible never says that, never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect. They miss heaven because it says in Hebrews, they neglect so great of salvation. J.I. Packer, the great man of faith, said evangelism is the issuing of a call to turn as well as to trust. It is the delivering not merely of a divine invitation to receive a Savior, but a divine command to repent of sin. I think that's well said. The gospel is a divine command to repent of sin. And when Jesus began his his ministry, he told people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He commanded them to repent. In fact, J.C. Ryle again said, Last judgment will prove that it is not the want of God's election so much as laziness, the love of sin, unbelief, and unwillingness to come to Christ which ruins the souls that are lost, end of quote. And I think he's right. I think you would say we affirm that statement. It's not that people want to come to Christ but can't because they're elect. No, they choose not to come to Christ because they would rather love their sin. And yet that being said, all over the scripture in Jesus and John 6 state that Salvation is a sovereign work of God. But it begs the question, if God is sovereign, then why go to Uganda? I mean, if God is sovereign, then why go to Albania? If God is sovereign, then why even spread the gospel? And so a question would come back to us this morning. Does a strong belief in God's sovereignty undermine man's responsibility to evangelize? And, you know, I left it as a question, but of course not. All I know is God is sovereign, but all I know is I see a school full of kids on the screen. 
because one man and his family went and basically took a machete and cut through the jungle and made something for people to hear the gospel. So God's sovereignty does not undermine man's responsibility to evangelize. I mean, do you stress human responsibility to such a degree, though, however, that God becomes subservient to your will? I mean, the question would come back, how do we boldly declare God's sovereignty and salvation, but then hold man responsible to believe or not believe the gospel? See, if we forget, beloved, that God is indeed, we'll see that today, sovereign in salvation, then we seek to secure the salvation of others. We think, either uh, in a great way or a small way, we think that we are the decisive factor in another's salvation. If you think that, then you can become very pragmatic and even manipulative to secure the desired results. And I know scores of churches who feel that weight and do anything they can to become pragmatic with the gospel and even manipulate the gospel. Yet, on the other hand, we also need to be sure that in our emphasis on God's sovereignty, okay, that we do not make that an, an exclusive emphasis. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, William Carey, many years ago, the first modern missionary on his way to India, wanted to go to India, and I've shared this with you before, and he sat down with the missionary society, and a very old crudger said to him, he said, sit down, young man, when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. In other words, sit down, young man. In fact, if I read you the end of the story, it was hilarious, because um, William Carey went on to tell him that Soon he too will die and be eaten by worms and go to glory. But they needed to get the gospel out, and so he went out. But that was just in the 1800s that that took place. I mean, that man who said that to William Carey obviously grasped God's sovereignty, but he missed great portions of Scripture that declare the church's responsibility to proclaim the gospel. So, beloved, what are we to do here? Well, let's look in John chapter 6. We come to answer those questions to that famous discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. And we are examining in John 6, 30 through 40, verses 30 through 40, five bold declarations that reveal Jesus as the bread of life that highlights the nature of salvation and our eternal security. Okay, it reveals here him as the bread of life, but it highlights our salvation and the nature of our eternal security. Now, we already saw the first two last week. They demanded a sign. Do you remember in verse 30? Even though they had saw the 20,000 people fed just previously on the day before, they follow him to the next place of visit that he went to, and they demand for a sign. Secondly, that led to Jesus, in verses 32 through 34, developing the Scripture. He gave them a truth about the source, a truth about relationship, a truth about bread. He had told them that the physical bread in the Old Testament, in Exodus 16, the manna, was a shadow of the true bread which comes down from heaven, which, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
And we said that it's so important last week because if you look in your Bible in John chapter 6, it says it very clearly there in verse 33, for the bread of God is he, it's a person who comes down from heaven. And here was the key phrase, gives life to the world. And we begin to expose that, that he doesn't just come and give physical life, but he gives life to the world. And here John uses the word zoe. In other words, he gives spiritual life to the world. And what that means, as we exposed last week, is he gives eternal life. In other words, he doesn't just give life and sustenance in physical bread, but he gives spiritual and eternal bread, and that spiritual and eternal bread is bound up in his person. He is the source of life in John 5.26, and he is the giver of life in 5.21. And that's where we left off. And so look what they said in verse 34. They said, sir, give to us this bread always. Give us this bread. In other words, I don't think they're sincere. I mean, I think when they say, give us this bread, I mean, they genuinely meant that, but I think they're talking about physical bread still. The reason I think that is just two verses later, he says, you've seen me, but you do not believe me. I think they're like the woman at the well. Lord, give me this water so that I never have to come to the well again. And they're saying to Jesus, give me this bread so that I never have to eat bread again or I'd have this continual supply of bread and I think it reveals a superficial a shallow a short-sighted thinking and so Jesus makes that wonderful statement and I bring us to the third declaration is the disclosure of the Savior look at it he said I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst he discloses himself he discloses himself as the Savior He makes that wonderful statement that I am the bread of life. Now, you know that there's seven of those statements in John's gospel. This is the first of the seven I am statements. And again, he's now, as you can see in the language, not referring to physical bread again. He's referring to himself. He is the bread of life. He is the source of life. He is the source of eternal life. And he links it with that statement, the I am, which, of course, as we looked in John 1, is a disclosure of his identity. He is God. And he joins a statement to that metaphor expressive of his work as a Savior. I am the bread of life. In other words, he is the zoe, not the bios. He is the bread of life. He is all that there is in spiritual life. He is the one, the only one, who can give and grant eternal life. And he says, the one who comes to me, look, says, shall never hunger. The one who believes in me shall never thirst. And it's a double negative in the Greek language. He shall never, never thirst or he or she shall never, never be hungry anymore. Because here he is not speaking about bread for the body. He's speaking about life. Is he not for the soul? Look down in chapter 6 and verse 48. He'll say it there again. He said, I am the bread of life. Look down in John chapter 6, verse 51. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In other words, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So our hunger is satisfied. Our 
thirst is quenched. Obviously, we still feed upon him for our daily bread. But that emphasis there of coming to Christ, life in Christ occurs. And when we come to saving faith in Christ, we know the experience of having joy and having peace, having our sins completely forgiven. Oh, one day it will culminate in Revelation 7 where it says, Never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. It's culminated, but we've seen that part of our life revealed now as we've come to Christ. You say, well, how do I get this bread? How does anyone get that bread? How does anyone understand Christ? How does anyone come to the living bread, to eternal life? Well, it's in the text, and there's two verbs there. Would you look at verse 35? Spelled out real clearly. He says, in essence, the same thing, two ways of saying the same thing. He uses two verbs. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. First, he who comes to me. In other words, the one who comes to Christ. The one who not just, here's why I think he does it two ways. It's just a little Hebrew um, idiom, if you will, where they put words together, but they're expressing the same thing. I suppose it'd be easy for just Jesus to say, and he could, whoever believes in me shall thirst. And certainly we would affirm that. You must trust Christ. You must lean on Christ. But it makes a difference when he says, you must come to me. In other words, you must come to me by faith. You must abandon everything else. You must abandon your own righteousness. You must abandon your sin. You must turn from your sin. You must come to me in full, you know, full person, and then you must believe in me, which in essence is saying the same thing. And you do that by coming to him in faith. For there's salvation, it says in Acts 4.12, in no one else. There's no other name under heaven in which man may be saved. And so when you see Christ as the pearl of great price, when you understand that he's the treasure hidden in the field, when you see that he's the savior of your sins, you come to him and you release and let go of everything and everyone and you come all wholeheartedly to Christ. You bow your knee to him. He takes first place in your life. You're not just here on a Sunday. You're consumed with Christ. You're consumed with the scripture. When you sin, you feel the weight of the Holy Spirit. But all of that is in that phrase. So here's how you come to Christ. You come to him by faith. You believe in him in what the scripture has said. You embrace him. You become united to him. You live for him. You forsake everything. You forsake every relationship, every boyfriend, every girlfriend, anything that does not honor Christ. If it be a business, whatever it is, you come to Christ. And when you find the pearl out of joy, you go and sell everything. When you stumble and in that picture of the parable over the treasure hidden in the field, you sell everything out of joy. That's how you come to him. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. You can't buy this. You can't work for this. You can't merit this. You come empty, if you will. Come looking to him because he's the savior, because he's the bread of life, because he's the source of life, because he's the source of eternal life. There is no other way. There is no other savior is the thought. And whoever comes shall no longer be hungry. And in fact, look what John adds there, or Jesus said in verse 35, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
You're never hungry. You're never thirsty. He's addressing here not food and drink for the body, but he is addressing food and drink for the soul. Your soul is satisfied. That emptiness that once marked your life has been satisfied in the person of Christ. In fact, look at verse 35 again. He shall never thirst. In other words, that one who comes, but you'll note there that the one who comes... He said in 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's an open-ended promise, is it not? Like any of you could come. Any of you. In fact, look back at John chapter 4. Remember when he said that to the woman at the well? Remember when he said this? In John 4, verse 13, I touched on it earlier. When he said, everyone in 4.13 who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You drink from this well... You're going to be thirsty again. But, verse 14, 414, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And you'll note the open-ended call there, whoever. In fact, look, go back over now, turn right, go to John chapter 7. When Jesus was at the feast, it's much the same way there. When he was at the feast there in John 7, 37, he stood up on that great day and cried out in 737, if anyone thirst, let him come to me. And then in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, the rivers of living water will flow. And so there's an open-endedness there to the gospel. So beloved, here's these declarations. They demand a sign. Jesus gently corrects them with the development of the scripture. Then after developing the scripture with them, he discloses himself to them that he's the savior of the world, and whoever can come and whoever believes will never hunger, no, never, never hunger, and no, never, never thirst. But not all trust the Lord, though. Never wondered that? And this leads right into the fourth declaration. The fourth declaration is in verse 36. Go back there. In verse 36, it says there, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Here's the disbelief of sinners. The word is declared. Jesus is standing in front of them. I mean, it is a little bit sobering, isn't it? He's talking to them, giving them this discourse. And we think he's giving this discourse at the end of chapter 6. He's in the synagogue. God himself is in front of them. God himself, in the person of Christ, is declaring that he's the eternal life. They probably, many of them, had witnessed the feeding of the 20,000. They saw the signs, and yet there's the disbelief of sinners here. So they saw the signs, but failed to see what the signs pointed to. It should have led to Christ. It should have led to faith in Christ. And beloved, in their own way, they are responsible. They are responsible. But they did not believe, many of them. In fact, as the chapter goes, some will turn away from him and never follow him anymore. That's why crowds are fickle. Crowds are fickle. But here, this is an amazing chapter, and I'm trying to wrap my hands on this thing. And I've never quite understood it as, I, as I've come to it, as I've been studying it. But there are people who just don't believe. In fact, look back at John chapter 5. Remember, he said it to him there in verse 38. He said to the Jewish people in 538, he said, You do not have the word abiding in you, and you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they who bear witness about me. And now this in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't that interesting? God is sovereign. We'll look at that in a moment in salvation, in calling men and women to himself. And yet other people refuse and they bear the responsibility of refusing. You certainly remember Matthew 23, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet Jesus said, yet you were not willing. And so I'm just asking you this question. Is Christ thwarted here? Is he thwarted? They, they do not believe. He's talking to them. Or does that mean that you have failed in your evangelistic efforts if they don't believe whom you're giving the gospel to? Now, what he's going to share with us is that salvation does not rest on people's response. Okay? Despite their disbelief, Jesus doesn't lose his joy, and neither should you. You say, well, why is that? Number five. The declaration here, the fifth declaration, is the determination of his sovereignty. And we're on holy ground here, okay? And, and this is, a, I'm commending you for sitting with me and listening. And I'm guaranteeing you that maybe 60 to 70% of you have never heard this doctrine. So buckle up, okay, and hold on. And we're going to keep going with it. But it's the determination of his sovereignty. Look at the words in verse 37 that Jesus said. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Glance at it again. All that the Father gives to me. In other words, the purpose of God cannot fail. The Father, beloved, gave to Christ a love gift. He gave to Christ those who would come to him. In fact, let me put it this way. The Father chooses and the Father appoints salvation. That is what we call the doctrine of election. He chooses, does the Father. He appoints the Son receives, is what it says there in 39, those whom the Father has chosen, and then the Son secures, verse 37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus said in verse 39 that I lose nothing of all that he has given me. So the Son secures and holds on to those whom the Father chose. The Son, in verse 39, will raise you up on the last day to eternal glory. And Romans 8 says that no one will ever be separated from the what? The love of God. So we're entering into His sovereignty here. God's work of election is His decision to choose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. That is what the scripture teaches. It is his choice, God's election, his decision to choose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. Now, certainly, beloved, and we'll talk on this next week, better be here, we must hear the gospel. I understand that. 
We must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We must respond in faith and repentance. Certainly, God forgives our sins. He places us in His family. But, beloved, it all begins with God's call of us from all eternity. Let me see if I can give you a working definition of it. And I'm capturing that phrase, all the Father gives to me. We may define election as follows. Election is an act of God. And I have to say that because it is an act of God. There's people who don't believe that. Some of you might be struggling with that as I speak. You believe that what activates your salvation is your faith. But here in the scripture, and I'll show you, it is an act of God before creation. You say, what do you mean, pastor? He chose you before the foundation of the world. You say, well, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's what the Bible says. In Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So watch this. I'm working towards this. It's an election. Election, not the election coming up, but the doctrine of election, is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. You want that one more time? Okay. It is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on the account of any foreseen merit in them, in you, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. In other words, I hope you feel humbled right now. If you're in this place and you're in Christ before you had done anything good or bad, God sovereignly called you out. He said, well, why would he do that? It's called grace. It's called pure grace. There is nothing you merit. There is nothing you did. There is an act of God upon you before the creation of the world. Look at that phrase again in 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What that means is this. You are saved, okay? All who are saved are a love gift by the Father to the Son. In fact, when you look at the whole history of redemption, it is the gathering of his redeemed body and the calling, if you will, of a bride, his church, for the Son as a love gift given by the Father to the Son. And the Son views every soul given by the Father to Him as an expression of the Father's love so that all whom He gives will come to Christ. And it's a sobering doctrine. In fact, would you look at it with me? Don't think it's just one statement. Look at verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has, what? Given to me. You are a gift from the God the Father to God the Son. He decreed you before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You must be drawn. The Father must draw you. Look at chapter 6, same one in verse 55. For, or chapter 6, excuse me, not verse um, 55, but verse 65. 
where it says there, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, he's granting that. Look over at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And the reason I'm showing you scriptures is this is not my theology unpacked. This is what the Bible says in John 10, 29. You know this well. My father, he says, go back to 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, verse 29, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I don't have time here, but beloved, if he put his mark on you before creation, do you think you can undo that mark? You think you can lose your salvation? You think that the one who called you out before the foundation of the world, before the greater central valley existed, before the world existed, before kingdoms existed, do you think the one who marked you out, who had your name in mind, is going to let go of you? Your salvation is so secure, beloved. You know why? Because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on a sovereign God who drew you. It's dependent on a sovereign God who who marked you out, if you will. My Father, who has given them to me, you have been given by the Father to the Son as a love gift. Look at John chapter 17, verse 2. John 17, verse 2. And just in his high priestly prayer, he says, since you have given him... In 17.2, authority over all flesh, Father to the Son, to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given me. To whom you have given me. I mean, it's just so clear. Look at John 17.6. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at 17.9. He said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. They are yours. Look at 17.24. Father, I desire that they also, here it is again, whom you have given me. Uh, be with me that where I am they may see your glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Look over at John chapter 18 and verse 9. He says this is to fulfill the word that, that he had spoken of those you gave me I have not lost what? One. L- listen, beloved. This issue of your assurance. This issue of eternal security is based not on your decision to follow Christ. It's based on a decree of God before the foundation of the world that he gave you as a gift to a son and is calling out a group of redeemed people. He has sovereignly chosen a group of redeemed saints from all eternity and the son receives those whom the father has given him. So listen, let me put it together. Go back to John 6. Despite the disbelief of sinners. The Lord declares that the chosen will come to him. You say, well, why go to Uganda? Well, why not go to Uganda? (laughs) 
if he's got his people all over in the globe. In fact, this is a fuel. This is fuel to missions. Corey and Christine should be in Albania because God Almighty has his people in every country, in every city. In fact, when you believe in the sovereignty of God, beloved, you are guaranteed of success. You say, well, pastor, I I, I don't know if they're elect or not. Well, neither do I. So what do you do? I just throw the seed. I throw the seed. I cast the seed. I'm the sower on the soil putting the seed of the word of God out. I don't know who's elect, but I know that he uses his word to redeem people. And I know that somehow, I don't want to take you off at this point too far, somehow man is fully responsible for what he does with Christ. So despite the disbelief, he's he's encouraged because all that the Father gave Christ are going to come to him And he will never cast them out. Why? Because he's perfectly obedient to the Father's will. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. John 1.13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're born of God. Romans 9.16, it says, It does not depend then on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's his mercy. Colossians 3.12, when he says, put on then as God's chosen, there it is, as his chosen ones, those are his elect. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, brothers beloved by God, he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God is has chose you as the first fruits to be saved. You say, but pastor, I expressed faith. I expressed repentance. And I would tell you, I expressed faith and I expressed repentance as well. So how does that work? Well, it works because if you don't have faith in Christ, you're not going to heaven. You say, well, I expressed faith. I prayed something like, God, I confess my sins. I acknowledge you as Savior and Lord. I believe that you raised up your son on the third day and those who trust you are saved. Yes, but even faith and repentance are called gifts of God, aren't they? I sometimes think we forget that. We forget for by grace, say it with me, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, it is not your own, what? Doing, it is a, what? A gift. Face a gift. You're not saved because of your faith. You're saved because Almighty God in the eternity, in in the Trinity, if you will, put His stamp of love on you and caused your heart to be born again. And then in causing you to be born again, He grants you faith and repentance as a gift from God. You say, you might even ask, maybe you're asking this right now. Have you ever asked this? I'm asking this in my study. Why me? You ever ask that? I mean, can you, beloved, begin to fathom the grace of God poured out upon you? That it says in 1 John 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the what? 
the children of God. It's all His grace. There's no reason that He would save you. Okay? It's not, remember when I said in that definition, on any foreseen merit in you. You and I, according to Ephesians 2.1, were dead in our trespasses and what? Sins. But God, in Ephesians 2.5, because of His great mercy and because of His great love in which He loved us, He made us alive. He took that EKG of your spiritual heart that was flatlined, that there was no movement to God, and He made you alive. Listen, beloved, it's all of His grace. It's all of His grace. But let me say this. Throughout Scripture, God is sovereign, but man bears the responsibility and he suffers the condemnation for his actions. So I just, I, I, I don't want to take you off on too many tangents, but I've had many people tell me I'm not one of the elect. You ever have people tell you that? I have people tell me that all the time who've been around the church to know the lingo. Tell me they're not elect, and so, Scott, there's nothing I can do. And I usually look those people in the face, and I said, that's a great reason to live with your girlfriend, though. Because the issue isn't one of understanding Christ. The issue is always a moral problem of failing to give your life to Christ. So some people just say, listen, I'm not elect. And I'm, oh, I said, I said, that makes you feel real good. But all I know is God is sovereign. Man bears the responsibility. You say, Scott, then, how can I harmonize these two truths? God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And here's my answer is how can you harmonize those two truths? You can't. You can't harmonize them. You can try. You can pick one side of the equation, but then you may become out of balance If you emphasize one side of the equation, you destroy the other or both truths at the same time. You can't change these truths. God is sovereign, man is responsible. You can't alter them. You can't tamper with them. You need to believe both truths because both are true in the scripture. So how does that work? I don't know how that works. But I can quote from one of my mentors, MacArthur, and I've shared this with you once before. It's helpful to me. He said, how can I help you to deal with that? And the, that is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How can I help you deal with that? He says, I can't harmonize it. I can't bring it all together. I can't solve your dilemma. I can't answer the apparent paradox. So what am I left with? I want to make you comfortable with your inability to not get it. He said, okay, question mark. I just want you to be completely happy that you don't get it, okay? Just to put you to rest, stop fighting that. He said, I want you to be comfortable with the fact that you might not understand something. He said, I know that that's a big pill to swallow because of human pride, but get over it and be content not to get it. Beloved, I honestly, as he said that, I... I think the same way. I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. And next to each other, we call those a juxtaposition. We have the call for all to believe. And whoever comes and whoever trusts and whoever believes and who's ever hungry and who's ever thirsty, side by side, that no one can come unless the Father draws him. 
that all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will never cast any out. They're always side by side and they're here side by side in John chapter 6. And so we have to recognize this. We have to understand that when the Bible deals with these things, it doesn't always explain itself. The Bible isn't self-conscious. You don't read, I, I know this is really tough to get. You don't have caveats like that. You don't have underlying statements. You don't have efforts to explain, if you will, or efforts to make explanations. These things are stated in Scripture as parallel realities and never are really explained or harmonized because they both actually exist. And the fact that we can't understand them leaves leaves us with just one option, and that is to believe them both and to be content with that. But listen, beloved, enough for me to say, our God is in salvation. Our God is sovereign in salvation. He's sovereign. You might even be saying to me, but I don't like it. You might not like it, but I just read it from the scripture, okay? I just showed you. Now, you might not like it. You might want to hold out and lean towards man's responsibility and your desire to give the gospel. I understand that. But you can't deny what I just taught. It's all over the scripture, okay? So he is sovereign in salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of God. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So here's five bold declarations that reveal Jesus is the bread of life. It highlights the nature of our salvation and our eternal security. Let me just say this as we close. This doctrine... Number one, uh, I would say it this way, should comfort you. It should encourage you as to your eternal security. Listen, if your salvation is dependent on what you did and what you said and what aisle you prayed, and at some point you did this and this and that and that, then it could come the day where you will undo yourself and you'll lose your security. But this doctrine should comfort you. It should encourage you. Secondly, I would say, It should elicit praise from your heart to God, right? I mean, if anything, just walk out today, be be stunned. I don't know why he'd pick me. I grew up in a pagan family, an utterly pagan family. But I'm stunned that he loved me. And you say, well, Scott, why why did I have to wait till I was 14? I don't know. I don't know why Paul was an accomplice to murder, but if he marked you out, then you ought to start living that way and you ought to be filled with praise and joy. Thirdly, I'd say this, you ought to just walk out here knowing of God's love. You ought to understand that you have been the object and affection of God the Father's love from before the world began. And the great love in Ephesians 2, 5, which he loved us, that he made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And finally, I'd say this. You ought to go evangelize people. You say, well, Scott, if it's all the Father gives to me, well, come, I get that. But I evangelize because I don't know who's redeemed and who's not. And God just told me, you have a responsibility to throw the seed. And all I know is whoever comes and trusts him will never hunger, and whoever believes will never thirst, and whoever drinks of this water will never become thirsty again, and God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him, and so it goes out. It's only in eternity will we realize what God has done. But beloved, I'd say this to you. We ought to be 
the most aggressive people for evangelism there is. We ought to be out there sharing the truth. Listen, you think, I, I see my grandkids once a year. You say, what do you think about that? I don't know. I've never shared that before, but I see them once a year. But all I know is God's got redeemed people in Albania, and they're doing a great work there. And it's a real joy. And so you realize that they can be there because God's got his people there, and a church is being formed, and people are coming to Christ weekly, and it's exciting to see what the Lord is doing. So listen, we ought to be super aggressive in our efforts to give out the gospel. So you say, well, Scott, practically, what does that look like for you? Well, as much as I know is when I'm communicating the gospel to somebody, in the back of my mind, I'm praying that God Almighty would open up their what? Heart. Because unless he does the work, it's just words. And so I'm praying. I'm, I'm obedient to Christ. I'm going out trying to fulfill the Great Commission all at the same time knowing that he's absolutely sovereign and that he must do the work. But it gives us the assurance that he's at work and that he will do the work. And William Carey should go to India and did go to India, and God used them in an amazing way. And so I would say that to some of you young people. I really believe the Lord's doing a great work in the life of our church, and I'm very, very excited for the days that are before us. But here's two twin responsibilities. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, they're both true, affirm them both, okay? 